Hello. Okay, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us on this special conference call. My name is Sean Miner. I'm the Associate Director and Fellow for the China Latin America Initiative in the Adrian Arst Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. Uh, I want to say that this call is done in conjunction with the Atlantic Council's Brent Scalcroft Center on International Security. I would like to mention up front that this call is on the record and open to the public. After the introductory remarks and questions, the participants in the call will have a chance to ask questions, and I'll give you some instructions on that a little later. So first, I want to thank our speakers today. We have the pleasure of hosting Minister Geraldo Munoz, Foreign Minister of Chile since 2014. Minister Munoz was previously Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, and before that, he was Assistant Administrator and Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean of the United Nations Development Program. Second, we have Jamie Metzl, a non-resident senior fellow for technology and national security in the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. He is also senior advisor to a New York-based global investment firm. He previously served as executive vice president of the Asia Society and deputy staff director of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We are delighted that you could join us for this very timely discussion ahead of the highly anticipated meeting between China's President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Donald Trump beginning tomorrow at Mar-a-Lago uh, going through Friday. The stakes are very high for this summit between the world's two largest economies. During the campaign, China was a frequent target of President Trump, including China's trade practices. But more recently, we have more missile launches out of North Korea, including yesterday, putting the issue of the Korean Peninsula front and center of the relationship. China, for its part, has a leader that is the most powerful and assertive Chinese leader in decades, and it's thrust China onto the world stage, tossing away the previous strategy of keeping to itself while amassing power. Moreover, moreover in the fall this year, the Chinese Communist Party is holding its twice-a-decade party congress, where the future leaders of China will be chosen. This the uneven economic relationship between China and many of its trading partners has created a lot of friction. Many in Latin America say that China's imports from the regions focus too much on commodities, while their exports to Latin America crowd out domestically produced value-added goods. President Trump has spoken out against the unbalanced trading relationship with China. Just this weekend, in an interview with the Financial Times, he said that we, we have to, quote, tell China that we cannot continue to trade if we are going to have an unfair deal like we have now. This is an unfair deal, end quote. This sets up the possibility for major changes in the bilateral economic relationship between China and the United States, which, which will have global ramifications. Talks of tariff, currency, manipulation, and unequal treatment continue to be brought up. One of the more salient trade issues in early in Trump's presidency was his move to signal the United States will not, no longer be part of the TPP, effectively taking a step back in terms of regional economic integration in the Asia-Pacific. This was music to China's ears, as many in China saw the TPP as a way to limit China's uh, role in economic integration in the Asia-Pacific. This has opened the door to China to step into Latin America with a larger presence than it has ever had. China's involvement in Latin America has grown rapidly in the last few years, including finance, trade, and foreign investment, and is looking to strengthen those relationships. 
one month ago, Mr. Minister Munoz hosted other ministers and official and officials from the TPP countries, plus China, South Korea, and Colombia, to discuss the path forward for regional integration in the Asia Pacific post TPP. Now I'm going to turn to Minister Munoz to make an opening statement and ask some follow-up questions. After, I'll turn to Mr. Jamie Metzl to do the same. Directly following, I'll open up for questions to the audience. Uh, Minister, Mr. Minister, uh, as you mentioned on Monday in your op-ed in the New York Times uh, about the post-TPP world, uh, I want to be begin with a couple questions regarding this trade meeting in Santiago last month. So what will happen to the TPP? Will the TPP go on without the United States? How will China assert itself in the region now that the U.S. is out of the TPP? And what else is China doing in Latin America to shore up relations with countries there? Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Sean, and to the Atlantic Council and uh, my fellow panelists uh, for, uh, for this dialogue. And uh, let me uh, say to, to begin that we were very pleased uh, as um, pro-temperate president of the Pacific Alliance to have hosted uh, in Viña del Mar, Chile, uh, a very high-level meeting in, in mid-March of all the signatories of the TPP, including also uh, China, South Korea, and Colombia, uh, and certainly the United States. And this was actually the, the, the first encounter of the, of the signatory countries post uh, the U.S. withdrawal of the, of the TPP. I, I believe that the results were far beyond what we expected. And, and in fact, you have cited the op-ed I, I wrote uh, and I, that appeared yesterday in the New York Times in, entitled Trade After the TPP, which I think summarizes the, the outcomes of the, of the meeting. I think there was a broad consensus that multilateral trade opening and economic integration must prevail over calls for protectionism and nationalism. Uh, there, there was also something very important that, that many of the participants, uh, high-level participants, mostly ministers, uh, asserted that inclusive development uh, can only be achieved through working together and that globalization cannot be stopped, but rather that we should harness its forces to, to create positive outcomes in terms of poverty reduction, equality through social and economic policy and sustainable development. So at, at, the, at the meeting, uh, in, a, in a very major way, the, the Pacific Alliance uh, countries, that is Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and, and Chile, agreed to begin trade negotiations as a bloc with Asia-Pacific partners with the aim of quickly achieving comprehensive and balanced agreements that meet the high standards set by the TPP, for example, improve services access, stronger labor rights, enhanced environmental protection, and, and common guidelines for, for e-commerce. And regarding the TPP in particular, at least the 11 remaining signatories recognized that that was a setback by the US, US decision, sovereign decision to, to withdraw, yet I think they, we agreed that we should at least say the elements contained both in the negotiating process and in the agreement itself that actually set it apart from others in terms of ambition and scope. 
the, the, the ministers of the 11 countries agreed to continue meeting, and in fact, the, there would be a meeting in Canada to exchange views on, on how to move forward towards economic integration in the Asia-Pacific through various modalities. Uh, and the results of that exercise would be discussed uh, at a ministerial trade meeting in APEC in, in June. But uh, I think that's something important that, that at least, if not all, let me say that many uh, emphasize, and that was the principles and the disciplines contained in the TPP, that they con continue to constitute a, a key parameter for future integration schemes. So uh, the, the idea is that in the process of negotiation of the TPP, uh, an agreement was achieved that sort of a 21st century quality agreement uh, that sets provisions in, in very relevant areas like non-tariff barriers, global value chains, electronic commerce, environment, labor, transparency, uh, SMEs. Uh, those are uh, important uh, aspects. So let me just say what next. Well, the, I think the Pacific Alliance countries are in the process or will be in the process soon of identifying uh, Asia-Pacific negotiating partners. In, in other words, what we want is for the Alliance, the Pacific Alliance to become a platform to implement the high quality standards set by the TPP and at the same time to achieve those agreements in a relatively short period of time. At the same time, we have a sort of an intra-regional task among TP, uh, among alliance uh, countries to remove uh, non-tariff barriers and, and increase the, the role of SMEs and trade facilitation, among other um, uh, challenges. And in a couple of days, the Pacific Alliance will be meeting with the ministers of Mercosur in Buenos Aires to evaluate progress on, on joint dialogue. So we're also looking at partners on the, on the Atlantic uh, even though uh, our goal is, is the Asia-Pacific integration. So these are some of the, uh, I think, outcomes. Uh, in other words, that there is life after TPP would be my, my summary. Well, thank you, Minister Munoz, for that great introduction. You touched on a lot of important points, including that uh, the TPP will looks like it will live on after it's, uh, the U.S. pulls out, but in maybe a form that people didn't expect. Um, even this week we saw in Trump's NAFTA proposal that there were many elements of the TPP in, uh, in his uh, suggestions for uh, moving NAFTA forward. But I want to turn a little bit to the uh, Pacific Alliance that you mentioned, uh, you know, as the Pacific Alliance has this mandate to increase economic relations with Asia, uh, and it does seem to be a very dynamic uh, uh, organization so or group. Uh, so what is next for the Pacific Alliance? Uh, you know, you have these newly created associated member countries. Uh, what seems to be the next step in signing free trade agreements with other nations? Is there a specific country or a region besides, you know, more generally, more specific than Asia that you're looking for? Well, we will, we will soon uh, identify the, the Asia-Pacific 
uh, negotiating partners uh, with uh, whom we would like to conclude uh, free trade agreements. And uh, that will probably be, be announced at a, a presidential meeting that we will have in, in Cali, Colombia. At the same time, we will consider those countries that conclude free trade agreements with the Pacific Alliance as associate members of the Pacific Alliance. What we have had in the few years that the Pacific Alliance has uh, been uh, in working is that there's a great deal of interest. In fact, there are 49 uh, observer uh, nations in the Pacific Alliance. And that is uh, it's a demonstration of a, of a great deal of interest in what we stand for. We have advanced quite a bit. We have implemented a, a uh, additional protocol that liberates, uh, liberalizes 92% of all exchanges among the four countries, but we still trade among us is still limited in our view. So we have, there's a lot of work ahead among us as Pacific Alliance. But I think the key thing is that we will begin negotiating as a block with Asia Pacific countries. And this, I think, represents a major shift and the emphasis then will no longer be on what will happen to the TPP, but actually on advancing by using the Pacific Alliance as a platform for future uh, trade agreement. So um, this is the, the way we are we're going. Uh, and we are recognizing, however, and I would say that many of the um, authorities that attended the meeting in Viña del Mar recognize also that we need to support all initiatives oriented towards the objective of integration of the Asia-Pacific region. In, in that sense, for instance, we all highly value the efforts put behind the RCEP negotiating process, the first steps that have been taken in the FDAAP initiative in APEC, and even some initiatives as the one that China has put forward, the One Belt, One Road. So uh, this is the, the perspective that we have, first of all, as my own country, Chile, but uh, also the Pacific Alliance that has undertaken some talks with ASEAN. And, and in fact, we have uh, signed a, a cooperation agreement with the ASEAN uh, countries. Very interesting. That uh, uh, seems like a very, you know, fitting area for the Pacific Alliance to uh, line up with. So I want to turn a little bit uh, to the U.S.-China relationship and its effects on Latin America. There seem to be some real risks and some large trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, how can this, uh, what kind of effects can this have uh, for the region of Latin America? And, you know, you can name some specific countries if you'd like. Um, you know, for example, China could buy more soy from Brazil or Argentina uh, and less from the United States. Are there are there other kind of major implications from a U.S.-China trade conflict? Well, first of all, I think that we all recognize that China is clearly an actor of huge importance, not only at the world level, but also specifically in, in the Latin American Caribbean uh, region. And uh, I think it's very important the statements have been made by President Xi Jinping in terms of commitment to free trade and open markets. 
and that was ratified with a, a high-level uh, delegate that, that China sent to, to our meeting in, in Viña del Mar. So our, our impression is that China sees Latin America as a, as an area of, of great potential in terms of trade and, and investment. And in that regard, uh, Chile, and I think uh, I can perceive that most Latin America countries share the same perspective, that they welcome a, a greater presence by China uh, in, in uh, both trade and investment. And in fact, uh, China is already either the first or the second largest trading partner for many Latin American countries. And they are participating in numerous infrastructure projects in the, in the region. And we, we hope that this trend will persist. But let me be very clear. Uh, Chile has excellent ties with China. In fact, we were the first country in South America to recognize the People's Republic of China in 1970. And those ties have never been suspended. Uh, but at the same time, we have excellent uh, relations with the United States. The, the U.S. is a major trade partner and the first investor in, in Chile. And I think our bilateral relationship has shown how uh, mutually beneficial it has been. Uh, in fact, the U.S. has a, a trade surplus with, with Chile, and trade has grown since we signed a, a bilateral free trade agreement more than a decade ago. So both China and the United States are very important not only to Chile, but I perceive that to other Latin American countries as well. And my conclusion is that nobody would win if there's trade conflict. What we prefer is to have enough cooperation so that we can engage in trade in different modalities. If the preference is bilateral, so be it, or sub-regional or regional. Uh, Chile, in fact, has been very pragmatic on this. We have numerous bilateral free trade agreement, but we also have sub-regional and regional trade agreement. And in fact, we have a, a trade agreement not only with the United States, as I mentioned, but also with China, and has proven really successful. We have around $32 billion of bilateral trade, and even though because of the commodities decline, price decline in, in recent years, our, our trade has uh, exports have fallen with regard to some countries, with regard to China has increased. So uh, for us, uh, a trade conflict would be a, uh, a clear losing proposition. So we would hope that uh, that would not be adoption of trade remedies or retaliations against either specific countries uh, or products uh, because I think protectionism, we know how it ended in the past. Uh, and I think the message from Viña del Mar was that uh, that would be a negative road to, to begin to follow. So escalation of protectionist measures will not help uh, anyone. And, and it could be very damaging for the, for the world economy. So uh, in our perspective, open markets have a necessity. And uh, we ought to avoid, and we're confident that China and the United States will, will uh, exercise the leadership that would, they will have along with others to, to avoid such a, a uh, potentially detrimental situation. Thank you, Mr. Munoz. Uh, yes, 
as you mentioned, the push for bilaterals for me seems a bit backwards looking, especially when you see uh, the initiatives in Asia, like you mentioned, the RCEP and uh, FTAP, the free trade area of the Asia Pacific being uh, talked about in uh, APEC. Well, now I'm going to turn to uh, Mr. Jamie Metzl uh, to have some introductory comments and then a few follow-up questions. But I want to uh, let the participants know now that we're going to open up the line for questions right now. So if you do want to get in line, you can push star one, and we will go to those questions after we're finished uh, speaking with Jamie, uh, uh, Mr. Metzl. So, uh, Jamie, we have a summit with the presidents of the United States and China coming very early in Trump's presidency and some serious comments from President Trump regarding trade and North Korea. Can you give us some context for this meeting compared with past presidential summits between the United States and China? And what do you think will be the main topics of the discussion for the summit? Is there any possibility of forward movement? Great. Uh, great questions. Uh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. And I really appreciated the comments of the, of the minister. Um, the big picture backdrop for this, uh, this coming summit is the state of U.S.-China relations, which right now are, are in pretty bad shape. Um, uh, there's a lot of distrust between the United States uh, and, uh, and China. Um, President Trump, and when he was candidate Trump, has said some uh, very strong things and thrown some spanners into the works of U.S. China uh, of U.S. China relations. At the same time, uh, China has uh, been taking some very aggressive uh, and even hostile actions in the South China Sea, uh, the East China Sea, and uh, and elsewhere. And while all of this is happening, we are seeing in many ways. Uh, the beginning of the end of the post-war international order. And I say that, and I've, I've written a, a recent uh, blog post about this as well, um, but I say that uh, because the transnational multilateral set of institutions that have governed the post-war world, um, even before the election of Donald Trump to the presidency, were already weakening. Uh, because new powers, particularly China and Russia, were playing an important role in international relations and not necessarily, forgive me for this background noise, somebody's honking their car outside of where I am, uh, but not, not necessarily uh, buying in um, to the underlying structures of that post-war international system. So even before uh, Donald Trump, that's something that, that, uh, that we are seeing. And going into this meeting, uh, we also have these two leaders in very different positions. Uh, President Xi, for the past five years, has been consolidating his power, and as was mentioned earlier on this call, um, is on the verge at the party congress at the end of this year of uh, consolidating power in a way that will allow him uh, and the top leaders in the Chinese Communist Party uh, to potentially drive a new round of reforms, um, whereas uh, President Trump is among the weakest United States presidents in recent history. His poll numbers are terrible. Um, uh, one after the other of his campaign uh, promises are, um, uh, are being violated, and he's representing a United States government 
that in, is in a very significant state of disarray. There's factional infighting uh, within the White House, uh, a, an enormous number of positions with the United States, uh, within the United States government uh, have yet to be filled. And by all accounts, uh, there is no meaningful trade China or uh, China strategy that the administration uh, is bringing uh, to these meetings. So that creates a, a very uh, dangerous mismatch. Uh, and so there are very legitimate questions which have been raised about why are why is this summit happening now? And the answer to that um, uh, um, brings us back to the politics of each side. Uh, President Xi, as I've mentioned, is uh, is heading towards the party summit uh, at the end of the uh, of the year, and he needs to to be shown being uh, a strong leader of China, uh, putting China China U.S. relations on a stable track. Um, and President Trump, who made uh, China a centerpiece of his campaign, needs to demonstrate uh, that he is doing something and the administration is doing something on China, uh, even though the facts to date, the promises that, that were made, particularly about things like declaring China a currency manipulator, have obviously, uh, have obviously not happened. And that is going to create um, a lot of pressure on the issues that are going to be raised, um, but will also suggest what some of the outcomes might be. Now, first and foremost among the issues uh, that will be explored at the summit will be trade. Um, the United States has uh, some very legitimate issues with, um, uh, with China, uh, issues related to market access uh, into China for U.S. companies and under the, the rubric of reciprocity, and there has not been adequate reciprocity between uh, US, the openness of the U.S. market for Chinese investors and the um, openness of the Chinese uh, market for U.S. investors and companies. Uh, secondly is <coughs> excuse me, intellectual property protections, uh, where uh, U.S. intellectual uh, U.S. held intellectual property has not largely been uh, respected uh, in uh, in China. And thirdly, uh, the issue of, uh, of the deficit, um, which last year was $347 billion. And part of that is due to, to uh, um, reasons that a lot of manufacturing that used to be distributed has now been, uh, has now been uh, localized and centralized in China. But a lot of that deficit, part of that deficit has to do with uh, this lack of reciprocal uh, access. So those are very legitimate issues. Unfortunately for President Trump, um, the U.S. administration has given away uh, the greatest piece of leverage in those negotiations with China, which, as the minister mentioned, um, is, what TPP, uh, is what TPP represented. Second uh, most important uh, issue that they'll be discussing is North Korea. Um, uh, President Trump, as was mentioned earlier on this call, um, has had strong words on, on North Korea, but as yet, no meaningful action uh, to date. Uh, but the, the table is being set um, for either China to step up in a meaningful way, which China is not, will not be willing to do for its own strategic reasons, or for the United States to do what uh, President Trump described as acting alone, which will not mean military action, but very likely it will mean uh, more aggressive banking and, and swift sanctions that will target Chinese companies that are doing business with, uh, with North Korea. China, however, and, and in these meetings, I think China will make some 
nominal concessions on North Korea and express a willingness to take certain actions, but not to the point of using enough leverage that would change the behavior of North Korea's leaders and that uh, the North Korean leadership would only change its behavior if it feared that it was going to be cut off uh, from uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese aid. And China is not willing to do that, again, for its own uh, strategic reasons. A third uh, issue uh, will be probably explored less, and that is the South China Sea, um, where uh, in spite of President Trump's bluster, um, the facts on the ground are continuing to evolve in uh, China's favor and at the expense of the United States and its, uh, and its allies. But having said all of that, uh, these kinds of summits are often very scripted or are almost always very scripted affairs, especially between the United States and, uh, and China. So we can expect um, uh, there will be a lot of, of choreographed interactions. And at the end of that, there will be a set of deliverables that will allow each side to claim that they have some kind of victory. And, and these deliverables have already, I'm sure, uh, been negotiated. And, and so on Saturday over the weekend, we will see um, tweets from uh, President Trump saying that he has secured X amount of investment and X job, a number of jobs uh, from the Chinese who are traveling with a very large business delegation. It's unclear whether those are investments that would have been made otherwise, but uh, China and Chinese leaders are very mindful of U.S. politics. And so they will um, give President Trump some nominal um, face-saving um, uh, benefits, which he can uh, can tweet out. But uh, this uh, meeting ultimately will not change um, U.S.-China strategic or economic relations, but it could um, uh, set a tone for future interactions going forward, particularly once the U.S. government gets its act to get, uh, together. But let me stop there. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, just to follow up, you mentioned trade and reciprocity. I want to uh, ask a little bit about how China's situation and moves seem to indicate it's going to continue in a direction that might maintain an unbalanced relationship with its trading partners. Uh, its economy has suddenly started to pick back up, surprising many, but a lot of that seems to be focused uh, at least fueled on uh, increased debt into many uh, sectors of the economy. Uh, also, the transition that China's in, moving from uh, manufacturing to services and you know, consumption to, from investment to consumption, seems to have really stopped. And, uh, and now we have more talk about this Made in China program, Made in China 2025, which really looks for uh, import substitution and uh, continuing China's focus on exports. So we may, uh, even if in the short term it turns around, I think long-term trends will head uh, will head uh, the same way they have been. So what are your thoughts on you know the relationship, the economic relationship in the next few years if we continue to see uh, great imbalances? How uh, how will that affect, uh, how will China react and how will the U.S. react? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. The promised reforms have not really materialized in China. China always um, is, is trying to find the right balance between stimulus and reform. On one hand, everybody, including China's leaders, recognize that China needs significant structural reform. 
On the other hand, getting that reform uh, requires taking some pain now, um, but because of questions about the legitimacy of Chinese uh, Chinese governmental system, uh, the leaders feel that they need to maintain a high level of, uh, of economic growth in order to maintain social stability. Uh, and so on one hand, uh, ultimately, economic reform and political reform in China will need to go hand in hand, um, but they are working feverishly to separate those two. And that's why uh, in now, and especially in the run-up to the Party Congress later this year, uh, there's a, a desire among Xi Jinping and the top leadership that there can't be uh, any economic dip. And so they will take whatever debt is necessary uh, in order to, to fuel that growth, but it is a sugar high uh, rather than an investment in, in long-term nutrition. Uh, and with this idea of made in China or what it used to be called indigenous uh, innovation, uh, for many in other parts of the world, uh, this is, just seems like a justification for continued large-scale theft of, uh, of intellectual property. And China has grown very, very rapidly over re uh, recent decades, in large part uh, because of the access it was uh, provided um, to markets in the United States, Europe, Latin America, and elsewhere. But as China's economy continues to emerge, um, and as these uh, imbalances uh, continue to grow, um, uh, these, these partners will not simply be willing to put up um, with the, the mercantilist behavior of the Chinese uh, government. And this is certainly true under President Trump, but this would have been true under any U.S. president. Okay, thank you, Jamie. And well, I'll ask one more question, and then I'll open it up to the participants. Participants, if you want to get in the line, push star one. But, uh, Jamie, I want to ask one more question uh, about North Korea. We had another launch last night, um, and the situation with China is that they don't want – they want to maintain the status quo, and they're worried about uh, U.S. ally being on their border in, uh, if North Korea collapses. Uh, the U.S. has very different goals uh, in terms of North Korea. So how – you know, how can we find, how can the U.S. and China find some common ground uh, in this summit? Um, they can talk about North Korea. They can uh, share concerns about North Korea. And China um, should be more concerned about North Korean nuclear weapons than the United States. North Korean uh, nuclear capabilities have a far greater and more transformative impact on China's behavior and maneuverability than they do on the, uh, the United States. But China thus far has made a strategic calculation that they'll put up with virtually any behavior uh, by the North Koreans rather than take action that uh, could potentially undermine the stability of the North Korean regime. Until that changes, uh, China will not be uh, willing uh, to take the steps necessary to alter North Korea's strategic calculus. So we will get lip service to greater uh, coordination. Uh, but at the end of the day, North Korea will continue on its path towards deliverable nuclear weapons unless it's stopped. And the only thing that's going to stop it is, um, is China. Okay, thank you, Jamie. So we'll now head to the questions. If the operator will please place the first person on the line. 
Your first question comes from the line of Franco Ordonez from McClatchy. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hey, thank you so much for uh, doing this call and being on the call. This is the question for the minister. Um, just, you know, it sounds from the call and from the uh, that that the that you and you know other leaders in Latin America will be watching this visit um, in Mar-a-Lago. I was just curious, what are the things that you will be looking for um, uh, on the visit, and what is the significance uh, to uh, Latin America? Are there any specific things you'll be watching for? All right. Well, it is. It is. Uh, it, it would be very difficult to ignore such an important meeting as uh, between the, the president of the United States and and the, the Chinese uh, leader, um, so that we will be paying attention. Uh, what signals is not up to decide, but uh, for us to decide. But but I would want uh, from that meeting to at least in terms of trade. Uh, a result in terms of a commitment to open trade. Uh, there are different modalities, as I said. Um, some may prefer bilateral. The danger with, uh, with bilateral, even though uh, Chile is in, in favor of bilateral deals, is that we end up with so-called spaghetti bowl. Uh, the, you know, common rules and coherent rules are, are better in that sense. But we will take any uh, alternative so long as it leads to to open trade, so that would probably be something that we will be paying uh, a lot of attention. And I think it's very positive that the leaders of the United States and China are meeting. That I think is a signal uh, in the direction of stability, in the direction of certainty, because there's just too much uncertainty in the world since today. So uh, that the two leaders uh, of the main countries in the world meet, uh, I think it's a, it's a positive signal. Thank you. Uh, we can put on the next participant, please. Your next question comes from the line of Rose Aralba O'Brien from Rabbis. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Um, Minister, you mentioned that um, the importance of China for Latin America. Um, and you also talked about within the TPP the importance of um, issues like labor standards um, and other aspects of TPP, such as anti-corruption measures. Um, and my understanding is that, you know, China, well, that was one of the main criticisms that China had of the TPP and its own, um, um, its own backed deals like RCEP, uh, very much pure trade deals. And so I was wondering, how does Latin America square that circle? Do you exclude China from these kind of pla these Pacific Alliance platform talks, or do you give way on issues like labor standards? Well, I can only speak on, on behalf of Chile. I, I cannot speak on behalf of any, of any other country, let alone uh, mm -hmm. China. Um, and I would say the following, that at least the aspiration of the Pacific Alliance countries, the four countries that make up the Pacific Alliance, is to negotiate free trade agreements that are of high standards, high quality, uh, high disciplines, and thus that include labor standards, environmental standards. So we don't want to just negotiate any free trade agreement. No, we want to uh, negotiate high quality free trade agreements. And in that sense, I think that uh, Pacific Alliance countries want to go in the direction of the standards that TPP 
sought to achieve and actually achieved, and to do it also in, in uh, short periods of time. We don't want to negotiate free trade agreement with our partners of the Asia Pacific that take years and years. Uh, we, we think that it's uh, of the highest uh, importance to negotiate in uh, short periods of, uh, of time. But coming back to your point, uh, I think that many countries are looking for high quality standards and, and that's what at least Chile will, will seek and what Pacific Alliance countries have uh, signaled that uh, we want with the Asia Pacific partners. Minister Munoz, uh, Mr. Metzl, do you have time for maybe two more questions? Sure. Okay. Great. So please put the next participant on the line. Absolutely. Your next question comes from the line of Andre Suarez from Inter-American Devil. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Uh, my question is for Minister Munoz. Uh, I would want to know how do you see the a roadmap for integration between the Pacific Alliance and Mercosur? Uh, how achievable do you think that is? Well, in, uh, within two days, we are meeting at the ministerial level in, in Buenos Aires. And we have, uh, I think, uh, paved the way towards a, a productive uh, uh, dialogue among the two uh, blocks, the, the two integration schemes. Uh, let me just say very clearly that we're not looking for infusion or integration through the two blocks because they're, they're different type of animals, if I were to say. Uh, but we are working towards a joint plan of action that, uh, for example, contemplates facilitation of trade, SMEs, um, electronic uh, windows, a series of uh, trade-enhancing uh, measures that uh, I think both blocks uh, want to achieve. So we have uh, worked uh, before. In fact, our experts have been meeting. Last year, there was a, a meeting at the level of vice ministers in, in Peru. So I think we are on our, are on our way. Uh, in, in the past, uh, there, there were obstacles to, to what we're doing now. But the climate has changed. And the, uh, I, I think the pressures to achieve uh, greater integration uh, are much higher and more necessary in this uh, world context. So I think that uh, this, this uh, dialogue between the Pacific Alliance and Mercosur, uh, I hope, will yield the result in terms of the specific issues that may constitute a, a joint plan of action. Thank you, Mr. Minister. So we'll take one more question. Just to clarify, the last caller was from the Inter-American Development Bank. I'll introduce the next caller is Lynn Du from Voice of America. Please put her on. For the minister. Um, minister, can you say something about the Chinese investment in Chile so far? Well, uh, there, there's uh, some uh, significant Chinese investments in Chile right now, but we really are looking forward to attracting more Chinese investment because uh, China is not yet uh, one of the major uh, sources of foreign direct investment in, in Chile. And there are two areas where we would uh, look forward to uh, achieving more Chinese investment. One is infrastructure and the other one is energy. And uh, uh, in, in light of this, there's uh, 
an agency, uh, a foreign investment promotion agency called Invest Chile, that is designing a strategy, in fact, to identify and attract Chinese companies that want to invest in, in Chile. And the idea is that these companies could bring their own capital to Chile, manufacture in our country, and eventually export to other destinations using Chile as a platform for doing business elsewhere in, in the region as, a, as an alternative as well. So we're looking forward towards uh, uh, much uh, more substantial Chinese investment in, in Chile. They would certainly be welcome, and we've been speaking in, in that regard, and I hope that uh, we, we can have more Chinese investment as, uh, as uh, we move on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I want to thank both of our speakers, Minister uh, Minister Geraldo Munoz and Mr. Jamie Mr. Jamie Metzl, I uh, and all of our participants for coming on the call today. Uh, thank you, and this is the end of the call. Thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.